The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 9. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were as, as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is the word of the Lord. God, I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, you are gracious, you are good, you are great, you are glorious. The Catechism says that you possess all joy, all goodness in and of yourself, and therefore you delight in yourself. And some of us, uh, we might push back against that. That sounds arrogant, but you are the Trinity. You are Father, Son, Holy Spirit, so that's not egotistical in any way. You are love. You are a perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are a perfect community. So you delight in yourself. And Father, through Christ's death and resurrection, we can participate in that with you. As C.S. Lewis says, we can get caught up in the dance, as it were. And we want to be caught up in the dance this morning. Would you enable us to understand you in whatever limited way we can? Would you... Enable us to hear your word. Would you enable us to be changed by it? Would you set us free from lesser things so we can be free in you and we can come to know uh, the God of all the universe, the God that's went so far to save us. And this morning, as we preach, as we work through a difficult text, would you anoint my mind to preach your word? Literally speak uh, words of heaven over lips of clay this morning. Would you anoint our ears to hear? Father, there's hearts that have been hardened by sin. There's minds that have been deceived by the deceitfulness of sin in this gathering this morning. But we are confident that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword. And you can pierce the soul. You can cut through the bars of iron. You can get to the innermost heart. You can get to the soul of who we are. And you can cut us. Not to wound us. Not to hurt us. But like a surgeon who makes a skillful incision to remove a cancer. Would you do that for us this morning? Would you do work on our hearts? So that we could enjoy you, the God of all joy. We could enjoy you and find our hope and our joy in you. That we know that the end of man, the purpose of us is to glorify God and enjoy you forever. Father, would you do that this morning? In Jesus' great name, we pray. Amen. Well, We are in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7. If you came to church today expecting to hear about Jesus coming in on a donkey, uh, we're going to talk about sex instead. So, uh, Now, we're not talking about sex because it's vogue. We're not talking about sex because we think it's cool and it'll gather a crowd and I want to be on the cutting edge and I want to kind of have like the shock jock personality. That's not why we're talking about sex this morning. We're talking about sex because we are working verse by verse through the book of first Corinthians. And that's where we are. We started last week and Paul started the the end of chapter six, spent a lot of time talking about sex. And now he's doing the same thing in chapter seven. If you were not here last week, 
Everything I'm going to say this week is built on the foundation of what we talked about last week. So I really encourage you, download the podcast. We talked about last week how, how Paul was basically saying sex is a road and sex is a window. Sex is a road and sex is a window. I'm not going to get into that. Uh, I'm not going to explain it too much. You can go back and listen to it. Uh, an, an older couple, as they were leaving the church yesterday, said, Pastor, we thank you for this sermon. We're going to go look at the window. I said, go ahead, enjoy the view. (laughs) So what we're seeing here now in chapter six and now in the first part of chapter seven was the two prevalent views regarding sex in the Corinthians culture. And they're very similar to the two prominent views regarding sex in our culture today. Do you remember what they were? We said there was a culture war going on in Corinth between the prudes and the pagans. And last week we got to see Paul's high view of married sex. It was kind of shocking. And this week, Paul's going to get really practical on us. This is how Paul, um, seeks to inform and instruct his disciples. He always starts with theology and then he gets really practical and he works out the practical implications of his theology. So that's what's going to happen this week. Paul is going to get really practical. He's going to build on the foundation, the theological foundation that he laid last week. And now this week, he's going to show us the practical implications of it. He's going to, listen, work out his theology. He's going to work it out. So we can all have good theology here, but how is that theology working itself out in our life and practice in the rhythms of our daily life? So just to remind us really quick, the prudes basically had a platonic view of the body. They were informed by the philosopher Plato. They believed that the body is bad. They believed that since the body is bad, sex is bad. Since the body is defiled and dirty, sex is defiled and dirty. And sex only exists as a necessary evil for making babies. They were kind of upset about it. I really wish God would have had it some other way. Sex is dirty. Uh, we only have to have sex when, we're, uh, when we want to make babies. They had a, that's a platonic view of the body. We, we said that was the prude's view. But then on the other hand, you have the pagans. And the pagans, same in our culture today, even though they don't label themselves pagans, they say the body is actually all we have. The body is inherently good. What you see around you is therefore the only thing that we know to be real. We don't know there's an afterlife. We don't know there's a spirit. We don't know we have a soul. We don't know there's heaven exists. All we see is what we have around us. Therefore, listen, sex is God. Sex is the highest form of pleasure on this earth. It's the highest form of self-expression. So the pagan says, do it as often as you can with as many partners as you can. Whatever your mind can dream up, express it. When it comes to our sexual desires, the prudes say, stuff them. And the pagans say, unleash them. And what many people think is that God's view of sex is synonymous with the prude's view. But nothing could be further from the truth. Listen what scholar and um, biblical commentator Anthony Thistleton says. Hence, far from devaluing sex, the very opposite comes about here in this text. In this area, Paul was far ahead of first century cultural assumptions in perceiving the sexual act as one of intimacy and self-commitment, which involved the whole person, not the mere manipulation of some peripheral function of the body. So Paul, what he's saying here is that sex was meant by God to be the full giving of oneself, one's entire self to the other to whom you belong. It was a revolutionary view in the first century. It wasn't just for procreation. It wasn't just a bodily function that needed to be fulfilled. I'm hungry, so I eat, right? I feel sexual desire, so I want to have sex. It was revolutionary, a way of self-communicating, a way of giving the entirety of myself to another in a committed 
relationship. So what we saw last week was Paul's response to those who were living like pagans. They were visiting prostitutes. They were in the church. They were calling themselves Christians. And they were, promis- uh, uh, they were visiting prostitutes and permi- they were being promiscuous. They were practicing sexual immorality, sleeping with people who were not, they were not married to. And Paul gave them a revolutionary view of their bodies and with it, a completely revolutionary view of sex. I want you to hear this. Up until this moment in history, no other society on the face of the planet had such a high view of sex. Sex was at most an animalistic instinct. The reason we believe sex to be meaningful in our culture today is because of the Christian's ethic regarding sexuality. came from nowhere else. This is a unique contribution that Christianity has made to our world. Paul said, our bodies are more than just flesh and bone. He said, you are actually, if you remember, built by God to be filled by God. And therefore, sex is a spiritual act of self-giving. Where two people become one, deeply united. It is spiritual, it is soul unifying, it's a picture, it's a window, remember, into our union that we have with Christ through the Holy Spirit. The way Christ, when we embrace Him by faith, comes to live inside of us and dwell in us and us in Him, the way we're united with Christ. That sexual union is a picture of our union with Christ. Paul says in Ephesians that it's a mega mystery. A picture of of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage having sexual union is a picture of Christ and us in the church. So therefore, because you have this high view of the body, you have this high view of sex, Paul said last week, here's the command he gave. Flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Take it serious. Sex is powerful. It's got heat like a fire. Right? A fire is a gift. When you place that fire inside of a fireplace, the flames warm your home and create a beautiful scene. But when the fire gets outside of the fireplace, what happens? Things get destroyed. Bad things happen. Everything you love can be destroyed. Sex is like a fire. It's built for the fireplace. The fireplace is the covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Sex outside of the fireplace is sinful and, can, and will bring destruction. So that leads us to these questions. Now, what are we supposed to do with our sexual desires? How are we supposed to use this gift that God's given us of sex? The prudes say stuff them, stuff it, control it, or stuff it, hold it back. The pagans say unleash it. Listen, Paul says the Christian controls it. I want you to hear this. You have been lied to in your culture that says you cannot control your sexual desires. You have been lied to. But I'm going to say this. You cannot control your sexual desires without the power of the Holy Spirit. But today we're going to see how we can control our desires for sex. Look at verse 1. Let's go. Chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, this is going to be pretty, uh, well, parents, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a warning. We're not going to, I won't be offensive. I'm not going to go overboard, but I'm just going to let you know that it's, Paul is very practical here. This is the Bible. Okay. He's very practical. So I'm going to have to, I'm going where he's going to be faithful to the text. Here we go. Verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Okay, stop right there. It's important for us to see here that Paul is switching gears in the letter. We've read six chapters so far and studied six chapters so far. And this is a clean break in the book. This is Paul completely stopping something and starting something new. He's switching gears. For the first six chapters, if you remember, he's been addressing issues that Chloe's people have brought to his Chloe's people traveled to Corinth. She saw the way they were living, the way they were behaving. She said, oh my gosh, this church is incredibly jacked up. This church is not 
functioning like the people of God. They don't look like God's outpost of heaven. They don't look like a kingdom of God on earth. So Chloe travels back to Ephesus where Paul is uh, building a new ministry. He's planting a new church in Ephesus. She travels back and she says, Paul, you, you won't believe this, but they're going crazy over there in Corinth. So the first six chapters, Paul is aggressive. Paul is sarcastic. Paul is like a father rebuking his children. Okay. But something else happened while Chloe was coming back. The Corinthians also wrote Paul a letter and sent it to him. And in this letter, they were probably working out their theology. They're trying to tell him what they're doing, how they're practicing, what they're believing, what their church community look like. And now Paul is, is not responding to the arguments, not responding to the stuff Chloe told him. Now Paul is responding to the letter they wrote. So what we're going to see is something in quotations. That thing in quotations is a slogan that they had. It was something they wrote to him in their letter. And Paul's siren goes off. Paul's alarm goes off and goes, whoa, that is not good. That's bad theology. That's not good. We, I have to address that. So what Paul's going to do is going to quote something they're saying. And then he's going to give his rebuttal. He's going to give his commentary on what they're saying. So look right here. Verse one. What was the, what were some of the members in the Corinthian church saying? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now to be clear, Paul is set. What they're saying is it is good for two married people not to have sex. That's what he's saying. It is good for two married people not to have sex. That was the slogan that the Corinthians were chanting and the Corinthians were portraying. What does that sound like? Prude or pagan? Prudes, right? Platonic sense, platonic sense of the body. Last week we saw the pagans, right? They were taking their freedom in Christ to give them a license to visit prostitutes. Woo, we've been set free. We're free in Christ. Let's go hook up with whoever we want to hook up with. Paul says, no, absolutely not. Flee from sexual immorality. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God in your bodies. This week, we now see the other response. We see the prudes abstaining from all sex, even in marriage. It's about to get uncomfortable up in here. N.T. Wright, one of the foremost theologians of our day, says this. The prudes... Put the wild animals of lust and hatred into cages. There they remain alive and dangerous, a constant threat to their captor. It seems that the prudes in the church in Corinth had this little slogan. It is good to abstain from all sex. Now I know that in a crowd this size, there are people here who feel the same way. You might not be throwing around that slogan or putting it on a t-shirt. It might not be on your coffee cup in the morning. But it is your reality when it comes to sex. It's your reality. As a married person, do you seek to avoid sex with your spouse? As a married person, do you avoid getting undressed around them so that they won't be uh, encouraged to ask you for sex? As a married person, do you go to bed at different times so that you can avoid having sex with your spouse? I had to do some research this week and according to the Social Organization of Sexuality, as they study the sexual practices in the United States, 80% of married couples only have sex a few times a month. 32% report having sex two to three times per week. 32%. Two to three times per week. That's the high number. 47% reported only having sex a few times per month. According to Newsweek, married couples say they have sex an average, here we go, (laughs) of 68.5 times a year. That .5... That was depressing. (laughs) That's slightly more than once a week. Slightly more than once a week. 
It's the average. Some of you single people might be saying, well, that's why I'm single. I don't want marriage to ruin my sex life. Well, it's funny because I have a stat for you as well. From Newsweek, it also says, even with those pathetic statistics, shameful statistics that say people are only having average, really having sex maybe once a week. Even with those pathetic statistics, married people still have 6.9 more sexual encounters per year than people have never been married. So if you think being single will like help your sex life, you're actually, that's not true statistically. Married couples still have sex more often than unmarried. So what does Paul say to those who, those of us and those in the Corinthian church who think that sex inside marriage should be abandoned, should be infrequent, should be only used for procreation? Think of verse 2. We're about to be shocked here, I think. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, we're going to get into that in a minute. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, okay? So they're saying you have sexual desires, so you should be married to one man and one woman. This rules out polygamy, okay? Verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. If you don't know what that word means, the husband should have sexual relations with his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Okay, Lord, I will do it. (laughs) See, some of you hate the law of God. I love the law of God. Oh, how I meditate on it all the day long. I will obey you, Jesus. Who says obedience is hard? Come on. Paul is actually commanding the Corinthians by letter to have sex with their spouse. First century. This is unheard of. This is, and we talked about this whole letter being, a, you know, church discipline, right? Trying to correct their failures and malfunctions. This is some good church discipline here. You need to have sex with your spouse. Thinking they're like, okay. See, again, what do we do with our sexual desires? Prudes say stuff it. But here's what happens. With prudes, either they eventually explode, right? You see, you know, right-wing conservatives pounding their pulpit or pounding their podiums, you know, talking about abstinence or purity or whatever it is. And then, and then years later they come out at, they've been having an affair for years. They've been doing all kind of freakish stuff behind closed doors. They've been trying to suppress their sexuality for so long that eventually it explodes. That can happen. Or what often happens is the marriage when, when they're stuffing their sexual desires, they're not having sex frequently. Their marriage union, this intimate union of love and mutual self-giving dries up and becomes a shoulder-to-shoulder, passionless partnership. We raise kids together. We run a house together. We run a business together. We function more like business partners, shoulder-to-shoulder. You do your stuff. I do my stuff. We've just learned to live together without sex, without passion. That's what happens when prudes just stuff it. But then the pagans say, yeah, that's, that's so degrading. No, no, you just need to unleash your sexuality and just let it go and let it run wild. And what we see then is pagans have no, they have no concept or no ability for monogamy. They will never be happy. They never know what it means to love another person because they can't lay their own desires down. So every time they feel a sexual desire, they have to go fill it with someone else. So they'll never have monogamy. They'll ruin their kids for monogamy because their their parent, their, their children will look at the parent and see the parent going from partner to partner to partner to partner. See, when you unleash your sexuality, it ruins you. It breaks a part of you. Or they might get married. 
That couple, there might be pagan and having great sex before marriage. And then they get married and she's not really interested in it anymore. So he, she's not, they're not having, coming together and having sex very often anymore. So two or three times a week, he's taking care of himself with pornography. Right? He takes care of himself with pornography. She goes to the bed to read Fifty Shades of Grey. But Paul says something completely revolutionary. He doesn't say bottle it up, stuff it. He doesn't say unleash it. He says control it. Self-control, a fruit of the spirit. Control your desires by having sex often with your spouse. Listen to this. In the Wall Street Journal, Harvard University social psychologist, Justin Miller says this. For many men, sex may be their primary way of communicating and expressing intimacy. For many men, sex may be their primary way of communicating and expressing intimacy. Taking away sex takes away their primary emotional outlet. This Harvard-trained psychologist is basically saying the same thing Paul did 2,000 years ago. If you are in a sexless marriage, you are open to sexual danger. Because the man whose emotional needs are unmet from his wife, all of a sudden, another woman starts giving him compliments. And listen, it's not just men. It's not just men. Same thing for a wife. The husband who is not attentive to his wife because he's too distracted at work or he's too stressed out over finances. He's got too much stuff going on. All of a sudden, another man takes a fancy to her, encourages her, compliments her, and starts to meet her needs. Next thing you know, an emotional connection leads to a physical connection, leads to devastation in all parts of the marriage. The sexual union was created by God to so give of one another that it's an emotional connection for a man. Many times, it's an emotional connection for a woman, but maybe not more as much as a man. This Harvard psychologist, it's, it's for many men, it's the primary way they express and communicate intimacy. And Paul says, Paul, the apostle, says God has given us marriage. One reason, we saw huge reasons last week, Took us up to the heights. The second reason is to help us control our sexual desires by frequent and fun sex with our spouse. Now, if you're already mad at me, then I'm about to make you furious because most prudes don't even know these next verses even exist in the Bible. And if they did, they probably would put a double lock on their chastity belt. Now, listen, you can curse me if you want. But I'm the mailman, okay? I'm the mailman. I'm delivering the mail. I'm just bringing to you what God has said in his word. This isn't my opinion. God wrote it. If you got a problem with it, you can disagree with him. But for some of us, I'm going to tell you, these next few verses are gold. (laughs) Men, you better be highlighting right now. I got a verse for that now. Woo! I've been arguing, but now I got a Bible verse, right? Here we go. Verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Oh, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, here's something pretty shocking. Last week, Paul said, your body does not belong to you. Your body belongs to the Lord. Your body belongs to the Lord. Now Paul is building on that theological foundation and he's saying not only does your body belong to the Lord, not only should you glorify God in your body, but your body also belongs to your spouse. 
Years ago, I, was, I heard a... Well, maybe I shouldn't say this. Now I'll say it anyways. Years ago, I heard Dr. Laura say how degrading it was for a man in the house to uh, maybe grab his wife's behind, okay? In front of the kids or in front... Just to, to ex- express sexuality in the home other than behind closed doors. And I was kind of shocked by it, but studying it, I get it. She's Jewish. And the Jewish concept is very platonic. Sex isn't really meant for fun. It isn't meant for enjoyment. Sex is meant for procreation. And that's not what, that's, Paul is speaking, many of them to Jew, some Jewish people, are, and there's some Jewish people with some Jewish backgrounds in this congregation. But he's not saying, he's not, he's, he's literally saying her body is your body. So, wise, slapping hands away, that's his butt, Right? He stood at the altar and he bought it. (laughs) And Paul is saying, Paul is saying her body belongs. My wife's body now belongs to me. But he also says, but my body belongs to her. Now, first off, before I get into it, I know some people are right Boom, porcupine, like things are coming up right now, right? I get it. I just want to, I want you to build, I want you to listen to this. Here's what some commentators say. The sexual relationship requires mutual sensitivity, loyalty, care, and tenderness. That in the sexual union, I have given myself to my spouse in such a way where I am looking away from my own needs. What makes me happy? What makes me feel good? What do I want? In in the sexual union, in a Christian sense, I'm looking away from my own needs, looking to fulfill the other. This is another reason why sex is only meant for a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. A wife gives herself to her husband in confidence that he will not exploit her. Covenant marriage. One night stand, you have no confidence that you will not be exploited. The, whatever happens in that bed or the backseat of that car might wind up on Facebook the next day. Without the covenant of marriage, you you cannot open yourself. You cannot let your walls down. You cannot truly give yourself to another because of fear of what that person might do. So the Bible says in sex, we do not open ourselves up completely. We do not share in this most intimate act without having everything else. Listen, literally on lockdown. Covenant marriage. My money is yours. I've given it all to you. My future is yours. I give it all to you. Everything I have is ours. No prenup, baby. I'm giving myself completely to you in marriage. So now I can give myself completely to you sexually in marriage. I think. Now, here's what happens in our culture. We've been influenced for many years by feminism that wants to make women and men. um, We we believe they're equal, but they're not equivalent. They're different. They have different needs. Okay. They're equal in dignity, value and worth, but they are not equivalent. Men and women are different. And many of us and many women in this room probably hear that this is my body belongs to him. No, this is my body. Right. And we hear it through a feministic mindset. And and then you you just completely miss the last half of that verse that says his and men are like, she can have it. (laughs) Like I've been wanting that for a long time. Right? Women bristle. Men are like, I've been praying for that. (laughs) But listen, this is what we need to know. If you find this verse degrading, 
It's not because it is degrading. It's because we've been influenced by our culture. That's a, that's a uh, 21st century cultural understanding in the West. But I want, what, I want to, what I want to shock you with is the exact opposite would have been true in the Corinthian culture. When this was written, women had no rights. Women were less than second-class citizen. I told you last week, men were encouraged to procreate with their wife and then have, have a guy or a girl on the side to have sexual relations with. Right? They couldn't vote. They, most of them weren't educated. They couldn't be educated. Most of them couldn't read and write. Women were less than second-class citizens. But Paul... And ladies, the reason we believe in women, women, women's rights is because Jesus instituted them. Because Jesus said, and, and Paul later says, there's no longer male and female. That all the dividing walls of hostility have been destroyed by the cross. That women can participate in the gathering. Women can get educated. Women can teach and lead in areas of the church. And right here, Paul is going to do something that was absolutely controversial and shocking. He looks to the man and says, and she owns your body. The men would have been shocked and appalled. We're, us, we're like, yeah, right? But back then, to think that the same rights a man has to a wife's woman, the wife has those same, those same rights to a man, absolutely countercultural in the day. It's just interesting. I think most of us don't really understand this. We think that we've been taught like evolution has created some of our cultural values, like the equality of races and um, the equality of men and women. And that's not true at any means. Those advancements have came through Christianity. The influence of Christianity on a culture. That's where these beliefs that most people think they're just common sense. No, they weren't common sense. They come out of a Christian understanding of the person. Let's look at verse 5. So, for the wife doesn't have her bo- own her own body, but the husband does. The husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now look at this. Here's a command. This is the law of God. This is what God commands of married people. Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. That deprive... It's funny, that word actually means to rob, to steal, or to defraud. When you stand at the, at the, in the marriage ceremony, you stand before God and before a pastor and before all these witnesses, and you say, I give myself totally, in total, all of my person, I give to you. That includes your body sexually. And to deprive your spouse of sexual relations is to rob from them, to defraud them, to steal from them. If you're married, here, let me put it like this. If you are married, you should never reject the advances of your spouse. You should never avoid them knowing that they're going to make an advance. Oh, I can tell he's in the mood. I better get something. I got I to clean out the cabinets. <laughs> Paul says you should only, and this is actually kind of funny to me what he says. Look what he says. But perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Perhaps, possibly for a little bit of time. Right now, listen, there are some situations. Somebody gets sick. Somebody's dealing with health issues, right? You're on a mission trip somewhere. Right? There, there's some situations that you have to agree to abstain. But Paul says, just for a limited time, there's a couple situations, but this is not the norm. You should be together sexually as often as the other person wants to. Both of you, other pe- person. You should not deny one another but by mutual consent and that just for a limited time. Now, listen, what that means is if the husband wants to be together, you should be together. If the wife wants to be together, you should be together. 
There is nothing, I think, more uh, devastating as one person constantly wanting to be together and the other constantly rejecting them. It's disgraceful. It's humiliating. It's self-centered and selfish. It will destroy a marriage. It's embarrassing. What My own spouse doesn't want to be with me. I'm always on offense. They're always on defense. That's painful. That's hurtful. It's a serious... Paul is saying, do you hear this? It is a serious thing to turn down sex with your spouse. You're breaking a commandment. I don't remember who it was. I should ask my wife. I don't remember who it was, but somebody gave us advice on our wedding night. We waited to have sex until marriage. And somebody gave us, didn't he give me, gave, gave her some advice. She said something like, you're never too tired and it'll always cure a headache. You're never too tired and it will always cure a headache. Sex was built by God to deeply unite a couple. And when, when we sin sexually, either by denying our spouse or by taking care of ourselves in some other way or sinning outside of marriage, it actually does the opposite. It's meant to connect. But if you break it, it does the opposite and it repels you from the other person. Pornography doesn't draw you to your spouse. It repels you from your spouse because she's not a freak like those people on the video. In other words, she's not an actor or actress. Sex inside of marriage is a God-ordained, God-approved tactic in fighting the sin of lust and immorality. Now, What is immorality? Verse two, Paul kind of says, because of sexual immorality, because of the temptation for sexual immorality, I want you to get married. I want you to have a lot of sex with your wife and husband. Now, what does that mean? Listen, we read a scripture or we read a, in our liturgy today, our first parents, he's talking about Adam and Eve. When they fell out, when they fell into sin or when they chose to sin and rebel against God, they didn't just break some rules. They rebelled from their creator. They, want, they didn't want God to be their God. They wanted to be their own God. And this is what happened. They were cursed. And that curse, what that curse does is that curse actually disorders their soul. Their curse, the curse affects every single part of our body, mind, emotions, will, head, heart, and hands. The curse affects all of us. So what it does is to sexual desire is at first the sexual desire was only meant for the husband and wife. It was meant to unite them. They, they were naked and not ashamed. Scripture says they knew each other. They loved each other in completion. But when sin entered their life and literally entered their bloodstream, their loves became disordered. Now they wanted sex, not just with each other. They wanted, they wanted their, their sexual desires went wild. They broke internally. And what Paul is saying, all of us have been broken in some way sexually. All of us. You might lean to the pagan side where you unleash your sexuality and brokenness. You might lead to the prude side where you just try to stuff your sexuality and brokenness. But it's all disordered. And you were built to be connected to a spouse and express your sexuality in a God-ordained, God-approved way for the mutual beneficiality of each other. And because we are bent, because our desires have been disordered, sex inside marriage is no longer good enough for us. Listen, it's no longer good enough. And in verse five, he tells us Satan, our enemy, our adversary actually uses our disordered desires to tempt us because he wants to steal and kill and destroy us. 
So he uses our disordered desires to jack with us, to mess us up, to get us to ruin our lives. So now we are tempted to use our sexuality in sinful ways that damage my soul, that will ruin my marriage, that will break up my family and totally blow up my future. Adultery is a disordered desire. I believe God is a liar. I believe God is a liar. That's what adultery is. God will not make me happy. God will not satisfy me. God made a mistake by giving me this husband. I'll go find and meet my own needs outside of the marriage. Same thing Adam and Eve did. God is not good. God does not have all goodness and joy in himself. I think God's a liar. I'll find joy on my own. That went poorly for them. It goes poorly for you. It goes poorly for me. It goes poorly for everyone who seeks to break God's laws. Listen, God's law, God's not arbitrary. God doesn't make meaningless laws. God makes these laws because when you break them, they break you. They destroy you. Adultery will destroy your soul. Adultery will destroy your family. Adultery will destroy your future. You're being lied to if you think it won't. Adultery is a disordered desire. Now, you can ask most men in this room, when you get married, your sexual desire for other women does not stop. But all of us, I think, would agree that we are meant to have self-control in marriage. One man, one woman. If I have desires for other women, somehow I have to control those desires. Well, Paul says one of the ways you control those desires is having fun and frequent sex with your spouse. That's one of God-ordained ways to control your sexuality. So do you hear me? Listen to what we're saying. I think anyone in our culture would say when you get married, you're supposed to control your desires to have sex with other women, right? I have a desire to have sex with other women and my spouse. I need to control that desire. I think we agree with that. Now listen, please hear me. The teaching of the gospel, the teaching of Christianity is the exact same thing is true for all other sexual immorality. Listen, you may have homosexual desires. You may have homosexual desires. Those are disordered desires because of sin. The only appropriate expression of our sexuality is in a one man, one woman, monogamous relationship. Everyone agrees. Everyone agrees that even though I want to have sex with other women, I'm supposed to control my desires. I can't express it. We're saying the same thing for homosexuality. Those desires are real. Even if people came out and said they were like, there's, there's not. But if there has been some genetic research that reveals homosexuality is genetic, we can say, okay, that it still should be resisted. Alcoholism has also been shown to be genetic. We still think people should control themselves, right? And get help. We're saying the same thing for homosexuality. See, our, our desires are broken. I don't want to just be committed to my wife. I want to be sexually immoral, right? Homosexual. I don't want to express it with a wife. I want to express it to whoever I want. It's brokenness. I don't want to just be, I want to look at pornography. It's all sexual immorality. So not just stuff it, not just unleash it and do what I feel, but control it. So as I'm beginning to land the plane here, sex inside of marriage should be Fun and frequent. A sexless marriage, hear me, is not a biblical marriage. So Paul responds to their slogan. They say, it's good for people not to have sex. Paul says, no, 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 no. Get married and have sex. Do not deprive one another. That's the, that's the boundaries. But what we're about to see is, pro- is another thing. I just keep saying this, but another thing that was absolutely revolutionary in his day and age. Look at the next verse, verse six. Now, it's a concession, not a command. He's already given us a command. 
a good one. Say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, what is Paul saying here? This is what Paul is saying. Listen, Paul is saying sex is good inside marriage. But listen, sex is not God. Paul was celibate. That means he was unmarried. He was happily unmarried. And he was remaining sexually abstinent. He was not visiting prostitutes. He was not taking care of himself. He was not having immoral sexual relationships. He was abstinent and okay with it. And he says there that that was a gift given to him by God. I was not given that gift. Right? Now listen. This is, I can't tell you how revolutionary this view was in this day and age. I think it's just as revolutionary today. Paul is saying, listen to me, you can be totally fulfilled in life without sex. That's what Paul's saying. You can be totally happy, totally fulfilled in life without sex if you're unmarried. He just goes on this exposition of how good sex is in marriage. He's not married himself. He's telling him to have sex often, frequently in marriage. And then he goes, but you know what? If you're single and celibate and okay with that, like me, I think that's good too. You should stay that way. That's a gift from the Lord. See, in that day and age, and I would say also in this day and age, People consider those who don't have sex, consider those who don't get married, consider those who remain single to be second class. Somehow they're strange or or weird or they're broken. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you married? What's wrong with you? Don't you have desires? What's wrong with you? See, sex is God in our culture. You can't be fulfilled without it, is the lie that they're told. And Paul says, no, sex is a gift from God, but sex is not God. You can be completely fulfilled without it. Paul is saying, listen, he's the NT right again. Paul is quite clear that being celibate is a perfectly good state, providing one is in control of your sexual impulses. Unlike many in our world, he doesn't consider life without active sexual relations to be inferior or deficient. Paul is saying, you don't have to be married to be whole. You don't have to have sex to be fulfilled as a person. This is what we need to see. Christianity says sex inside of a covenant marriage is good, but a relationship with God is better. Our culture says sex is God. There's nothing better. Christianity says union with Christ, intimacy with Christ is better. So Paul is really clear here. He does. Now listen, for the single person who's like, oh crap, man, am I supposed to be celibate? Did I get that gift? Like, like, listen, here's the, and this ain't like white elephant, right? You don't get a gift you don't want, right? If you have the gift, then it's a good gift to you. You see being single and celibate as a good thing. You enjoy studies. You enjoy your work. You want to be travel. You want to travel a lot, right? It's a gift. It is a gift given by God for his purposes. He doesn't expect anyone who lacks that gift to stay single and celibate. In fact, what does he say at the end of this chapter? He sa- or in the end of these verses, he says, if you cannot remain celibate and single, then you should get married because it's better to get married than to burn. That's what he says. They add with passion to convey a meaning. But he says it's better to get married than to burn. In other words, if you have a strong sexual drive, if you desire to be sexually active, then the only appropriate way for you to use that gift is inside the covenant of marriage. And that's the biblical ethic. That's celibacy. Here's Here's God's picture on sex. 
celibacy or a sexy marriage. That's it. Anything else is a violation of the gift that God has given us. Now, statistics tell us that most people want to get married and most people will get married and that's good. Most people have a sexual drive and sexual desires. But here, again, as I close, what are we supposed to do with them? We don't stuff them. We don't unleash them. How do we control them? Now, most of us have probably, maybe, been down to the Mississippi River right across from the Front Street Brewery. And you've seen the famous Lock and Dam 15. Now, if you don't know, Lock and Dam 15 is the largest roller dam in the world, right? It's over 1,200 feet long, stretches from Davenport to Rock Island. You didn't know we had something famous. Well, we got a few things. You know what this Lock and Dam does? <clears throat> Basically, it controls the flow of water and it controls the level of water in the Mississippi. To allow boats all year round to navigate its waters. Think about a river flowing downstream. If you build a dam, what happens? The water rises. Like up above the dam, the water rises until it spills over its banks and it creates a huge mess. That's what happens when you stop up a dam, right? You stop it up, stop the flow of water. It makes a huge mess. Streets get flooded. Devastation takes place. But then below the dam, water dries up, right? Below the dam, things get shallow. Too shallow for boats and barges to travel the river. So the lock and dam system actually controls the water level. It keeps it as consistent as possible. And that is exactly what sex does inside a marriage for a couple. It keeps the waters of desire from rising too high where the temptation to sin sexually is too great. And it keeps the waters of desire from being dried up where a sexless, passionless partnership has replaced a God-honoring, God-glorifying sex life. Sex in a marriage is meant to control, help control your sexuality and your sexual desires. It's God-given to us. Now, as I, can, as I close, I need to address something. These Corinthians were not prudes in the Amish sense. Right? I say that because I think you know what I mean. Remember, we just saw two weeks ago, remember the verse, and such were some of you? These were ex-prostitutes. These were ex-homosexuals. These were ex-sexually immoral people. These were people who tried unleashing it, using sex whatever way they wanted to. But what we see is that now, many of them, more than likely, had been damaged by their sexuality, by the previous sexual relationships. No doubt, Some of them had been raped. No doubt, many of them had been sexually assaulted. In our culture today, one in four women will be sexually assaulted and one in six men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. Heinous. And so, no doubt what's happening, they unleashed their sexuality and they got hooked up with some freak who took advantage of them, who sinned against them sexually, who assaulted them. And now they're experiencing all the guilt and all the shame that comes along with being sexually assaulted. They feel dirty. They feel defiled. They felt damaged. And human beings who have been sinned against sexually usually respond in two ways. One, they say, I'm dirty, so I'll act dirty. And they continue to live that life of sexual morality I feel defiled. I'll just let them be. I'll just let them defile me. So they continue in sexual morality. Paul addressed that last week. Don't go back to the prostitutes. Don't go do those things anymore. But the second response to those who've been sexually assaulted, that is natural, is someone will say, no one will ever make me feel that way again. 
Sex is bad. Sex is dirty. So I'm done. I hate sex. And they try to be, they try to go to the prude. They try to just stop it up and say, no more. I feel dirty. I don't ever want to feel that way again. So they push it up. They push away from sex and they say, no. And many times the husband doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know why they're so broken. It's because she's been assaulted. Both, listen to me, both responses are normal, human responses. But what Paul is showing us here, listen to me. This is it as I close. Neither of those responses will bring the healing and the cleansing that you're hoping for. Acting dirty, stopping, just trying to stop having sex. Neither one will bring healing. You've been offended. You've been assaulted. You've been defiled. You've been hurt. You've been wounded. But listen, invert. The last verse of that last chapter gives us great hope. Listen to me. He says, Paul says this, but you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. That's great hope. Now, I'm going to explain something deeply theological right now, but it's it. And I think it can bring great healing. So I want you to pay attention. There's two huge words in the Bible that most of us maybe have never heard of. One's called propitiation and one's called expiation propitiation. What does that mean? Propitiation means there was wrath that was meant for us because of our sin. God was angry at us because we were rebels and his enemy and God had rightful, just anger and he wanted to punish us. But listen, Jesus Christ on the cross took our place, became our propitiation. He took all the wrath that God had towards sin and towards us Jesus took all that wrath on himself. That's propitiation. All right? But listen, this is one. We talk about that a lot around here, but this is the other side of that. There's a term called expiation. And what expiation means this, listen. Expiation is the doctrine that Christians have been cleansed from sin. Both the sins that we have committed and the sins that have been committed against us through the work of Christ on the cross. Listen. To expiate, X means to take out. Now, I'm going to give you a picture. Uh, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, it celebrates called Yom Kippur. This is what would happen. The Jews would come together and they'd bring two goats. And the high priest would take these two goats and the first one, this is the Day of Atonement, the first one was the propitiation. So he would say to all the people, your sins have been very great this year. We have sinned in word, deed, thought, action. Our affections, we've sinned sexually. We've, we've sinned in great ways and we deserve to die. God should have wrath on us. God should destroy us because we're rebels. But this goat is taking your place. He's taking the wrath of God and he would slit the throat of the goat. And the goat would die. The goat would take their place. Jesus Christ on the cross became that goat. He died a murderer's death. He took the wrath of God that we deserve. And blood flowed. But there was a second goat. And this was called the scapegoat. This is the goat of expiation. What the priest would do would confess all the sins of the people. The sins they've done. and The sins that have been done to get them. He would confess the sins over that goat. And listen to this. Then they would send that goat free. And he would say, all the shame, all the guilt, all the pain that your sins have caused, they're gone. They're leaving us. They're being taken far from us. God says, as far as the east is from the west, your sin and your shame and your guilt is being removed from you. And Jesus Christ on the cross absorbed all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your dirtiness. He wasn't just the propitiation. He was the expiation. He absorbs all the dirtiness in himself and he dies to make you clean and pure. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, though your sins are like scarlet, though you feel dirty, though you feel defiled in God's eyes, you have been made spotless and clean. And if you've been the victim of a sexual assault, I want you to hear that from your pastor today. In God's eyes, you are clean. You are clean. 
And it might take decades to work out your salvation. It might take decades to experience the redemption that Christ has bought for you. But hear me, you are clean. And if you need to meet, if we need to have counseling, I'm up for it. Don't bottle it up. Don't cover it up. Don't respond just the normal ways through letting, through letting it go or trying to bottle it up. Christ has covered it. He has redeemed it. Let's pray. Father, your grace is deeper still. Would you minister your grace to your people now? You felt our shame. You felt our guilt. You know what, Jesus, you know what it likes to feel dirty and defiled. Because you were pure. You were spotless. You never sinned. And yet you took on our sin. You felt all of the pain and the repercussions and the filth and the vile. You felt it. But you dealt with it. You destroyed it. She said you even despised, you rejected and despised the shame. You, you marched to the cross willingly because you love us. And you knew that we would suffer in our sins. We would suffer. So we needed a suffering savior. So you suffered for us in our place. God, would you speak grace to your people now? Would you bring that atonement, that healing, that deep soul healing? Would you bring it now? And for those of you, for those of us who have not embraced you by faith, would you give them the faith that this moment to believe in you, to take you into themselves, to be united with you? Would you give them the faith, Father? For those of us who have sinned sexually, either by being promiscuous or by being prudish, would you convict us and would you bring us to repentance? Would we love our spouse in a new and a fresh, in a God-ordaining, God-glorifying way? Would you cut through years of resentment, years of bitterness? Would you heal deep-seated emotional wounds? Would you do that for your glory, for your name, for your fame, for our joy? Father, as we come to the table today, as we confess our sins before you and we come to the table to receive the body and the blood of Christ, would you communicate that grace to us? Our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Oh, what a savior. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, what a savior that we have. Who would purchase broken people like us, damaged goods like us. Would this meal communicate that grace to us in a fresh way this morning? Your body was broken and your blood was shed for your people, for their sins. Christ's name we pray. Amen.